Well, we are going to be in Mark's gospel this morning. Mark is the second gospel. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, right before we start the message, I know the guys, uh, they're on duty, so they're going to head out. But I want to go ahead and pray, and I'm going to include a prayer for Greg and the fire department, and then just pray over our message. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you so much for Christmas miracles. They are all around us, and there are wonderful people, wonderful servants, uh, not only within this building, and there are beautiful, wonderful servants of the Most High God here who serve you every day selflessly without credit, uh, at least from man. But Lord, there are also wonderful public servants, many of whom know you personally. They are Christians, and they do what they do because they love you, and they want to extend your love to others. Uh, we want to pray a blessing over the Corona Fire Department, everyone who serves on that uh, fire department, Lord, um, we are grateful for them. We do lift up Greg to you, and we thank you for that Christmas miracle of him being okay, and we pray for continued healing over him, and that he'll heal up quickly and be back to that punching that bag that he does in his garage and walking around the city of Corona. Thank you for Greg and Ruthie and their family. Father, as we uh, think about Christmas and we think about the blessing of our Savior coming into the world you came not to be served, you said, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. We're so grateful. I want to pray over um, each person that's come into these doors this morning. You know where every heart is. You know what they need. You know where they are with their relationship with you, whether they know you or whether they don't. But they're here for a purpose, to get to know you better. Help all of us, Lord, before we leave today, that we could say we know you better or we've come to know you for the first time. And we know that that's what the Bible does. It, it introduces us to the God who made everything and the God who became that baby in Bethlehem on that wonderful Christmas night. As we look at the ministry of Jesus Christ through the lens of Mark's gospel, may you bless us, Father. May you open our ears and our eyes to wonderful things from your word. May we be changed more into your image. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now we have four Gospels in the Bible, four accounts of the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, four portraits of the Messiah. Each of the Gospel writers give us a little different angle on Jesus. There's some crossover. Matthew presents Jesus as the King, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. Many, many times in the Gospel of Matthew, you will find him reaching back into the prophets, saying the prophet predicted this. In fact, in Matthew's, Matthew's Gospel, you find a genealogy of Jesus Christ going back to David, showing that Jesus is the legitimate king of Israel. So Matthew's Gospel is focused largely on a Jewish audience, but not just exclusively Jewish. As you go to Mark's Gospel, Mark focuses on the servant the key verse is Mark 10.45. Jesus said that even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark's gospel, which we will study, is fast moving. It gets uh, really to the heart of the matter without going into the birth narrative or uh, spending a lot of time on the history and genealogy of Jesus. It shows Jesus as a miracle worker, his power over demons, disease, and death. It shows his heart for the people. It's the love of God in action. Luke, um, probably the only Gentile writer in the New Testament, presents Jesus as the perfect man, the son of man. Luke is a medical doctor, so he spends a lot of time talking about Jesus' history and going back into, the, in, into his childhood, tells about him going to the temple when he was 12 years old, and shows us in the key verse, Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to, remember, save that which was lost. The beautiful story of the prodigal son is in Luke chapter 15. And then John presents Jesus as deity or God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Each gospel writer giving us a little bit of a different angle taken together 
You can see that what the Holy Spirit is doing with the four gospel writers is to give you a more complete picture of Jesus Christ. So it's important that you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to get the full portrait of who Jesus is. He is the perfect man, 100% man, 100% God, and he came into the world to save us from our sins. His arrival has changed and dated the calendar of the world. You can do whatever you want to try to criticize Scripture, to try to criticize Christ, but you cannot change history. Your view of history is important. How you view the arrival of the Messiah is important. There have been many critics, many people who have come at the Bible and at Jesus in a uh, sense of trying to destroy him, but you can't change the facts. The facts, they are the facts. Now there's an interesting story, it's recorded in a book um, that uh, chronicles the life of two budding evangelists. And uh, the, the story is written in the Case for Christ and the Case for Faith written by Lee Strobel. Really quick, Lee Strobel was a news reporter for the Chicago Tribune. He was an atheist. His wife became a Christian, became a Christian, and uh, he was an alcoholic. And so he was struggling with her decision to follow Christ, and he was very critical of the Christian uh, worldview and of faith in Jesus Christ. And so he began a mission as a reporter to try to disprove Christianity. And the more he wrestled with the documents and the eyewitness testimony, he was gloriously converted to Jesus Christ. And Lee Strobel became a Christian. Many of you have heard him speak on, in many different places and venues. He tells the story of Charles Templeton and Billy Graham. Both contemporaries, both met early on in their ministries, and both began to preach the gospel. And Billy, of course, uh, many of us uh, know all that he has done around the world. But at some point in Charles Templeton's life, he went on a different path. He had a crisis, call it a crisis of faith. He began to doubt the biblical record. In fact, some of his uh, doubts came as a result of Darwinian evolution and the argument for the universe coming from uh, all of you know, the evolutionary periods and all of that stuff. Of course, if you've looked at that recently, and if you're new to things about the Christian faith, I would just say to you, just look at the evidence for Darwinian evolution. It is absolutely bankrupt. In fact, there are scientists who would not call themselves Christians right now who are trying to come up with other uh, views to explain the universe because Darwin's theory is pretty much gone. Now, it's still being taught in textbooks as fact, but it's bankrupt. The evidence and the science will lead you back to a creator. There is no doubt about it. But Charles Templeton struggled with that, and he struggled with some other things. For example, he saw a magazine cover, as I recall the story, where there was a woman somewhere, I think, in Africa carrying a dead baby because it had not rained for quite some time. And he asked the question, how could a God of love not allow it to rain there? And that picture spoke you know, 10,000 words to his soul. And so he abandoned the Christian faith and he began to write books against Christianity. And so as he got older, this was all happening in the 1930s and 40s, and he was about the same age as Billy Graham. As he got older, he came down with Alzheimer's. And so uh, Strobel realized uh, he had come across Templeton's story. So he wanted to find out what was happening with this guy. And at this point, when Strobel's writing the book, I think Templeton is about in his 80s. He's got Alzheimer's, and somehow Strobel's able to get an appointment with Charles Templeton. He begins to engage him and ask him questions, and even though he had Alzheimer's, he was lucid at times, and he was able to communicate and have conversations. And finally, after discussions about various subjects, Strobel asked the question, he said, what about Jesus? What about Jesus? What do you do with him? And uh, Templeton said, quote, he's the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and it led to his own death. 
much to the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except, except that this was a form of greatness? Strobel says, I was taken aback. You sound like you really care about him, I said. Well, yes, he is the most important thing in my life. Now, this is a man who is now writing books against the Christian faith and claims to be at least an agnostic. He said, I, I, he's stuttering now, searching for the right word. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say, I adore him. Strobel was struck. He says, everything good I know, Templeton speaking, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I've learned from Jesus. Yes, yes. And tough. Just look at Jesus. He castigated people. He was angry. People don't think of him that way, but they don't read the Bible. He had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed and exploited. There's no question that he had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in history. There have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. Uh, but, but no, he said slowly, he's the most, he stopped, then he started again. In my view, he declared, he's the most important human being who has ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words, says Strobel, I never expected to hear from him. And if I may put it this way, said Templeton, his voice began to crack. I miss him. With, with that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and he looked downward, raising his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. Templeton fought to compose himself. I could tell it wasn't like him to lose control in front of a stranger. He sighed deeply and wiped away a tear. After a few more awkward moments, he waved his hand dismissively. Finally, quietly, but adamantly, he insisted, enough of that, close quote. You know, we have people in our world who, even though they have a crisis of faith, you can't fight it. Jesus Christ will change you. When you get into the Gospels and you speak of Christmas time, I was telling the staff this recently, we, we meet every Tuesday morning and we spend a lot of time in ministry trying to remind people not to lose Christ in Christmas. And I told the staff, let's not us do that. Let's not us be so busy about ministry that we lose Christ in Christmas. And one thing I would challenge you to do this Christmas season as the clock is ticking and the days will quickly pass and we'll put away all the decorations in no time at all is don't lose Christ in Christmas. He will change your life. He will change your perspective about everything. E.V. Rue uh, this is uh, from R. Kent Hughes, and he opens his commentary on Mark this way. Some years ago, one of the world's renowned scholars of the classics, Dr. E.V. Ryu, completed a great translation of Homer into modern English for the Penguin Classic series. He was 60 years old, and he, be, he had been an agnostic all his life. An agnostic just means some, somebody who just is really not sure about God and about faith. The publisher soon approached him again and asked him to translate the Gospels. When Ryu's son heard this, he said, it will be interesting to see what Father will make of the four Gospels. It will be even more interesting to see what the four Gospels make of Father. He did not have to wonder very long. Within a year's time, E.V. Ryu, the lifelong agnostic, responded to the Gospels he was translating and became a committed Christian. His story is a marvelous testimony to the transforming power of God's word. Experiences like this have been repeated time and time and time again. The Bible changes people. Jesus Christ changes lives. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I met him about 30 years ago. I had come out of a religious home. I had wandered away from... Um, at least practicing or following God. Uh, my family stopped going to church when I was about 13 or 14 years old. There was a lot of dysfunction in the family, like a lot of you come from, and I lost my way. And I began to listen to my friends, and I began to just kind of say, well, the world's a mess anyway, so I'm going to just party and do what I want to do. 
And a woman that I was doing business with invited me to a church service when I was about 19 or 20 years old. And that's when I was first exposed to the truth that I'm going to share with you this morning. I had heard about Jesus. I knew some facts about God. I even would say that I feared God in some ways. But I was living like a fool. My life and the the course of my life was not to please him. It was not to honor him. And in fact, I would have to say that in my own personal journey, I was doing a lot of damage uh, to myself and to others. And so I met him. I met him on the pages of the Bible. The Bible is God's inspired word, and it is able to change your life. I met him in a place that many of you have met him. Uh, I met him in a church service where a preacher began to preach, and I felt like he had been following me for about the last five years, <laughs> which is a unique experience, isn't it? Like, what in the world's going on here? How does this person know so much about my life? Well, it's because it's the story of all of us. We all come into the world broken. We all need a Savior. And the good news is that he did come. Mark opens his gospel. We'll just look at the first three verses together by stating these words. Mark 1, verse 1. He says, the beginning, the Greek word is arche. It's where we get the English word architect. The beginning of the gospel. The Greek word for gospel is Euangelion of Jesus Christ, Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the Son of God. Now, I mentioned to you that Mark does not spend time on the birth of Jesus. He does not go back to Jesus visiting the temple at 12 years old. He opens the gospel, fast-moving, getting right to the heart of the matter. Now, some of you might ask the question, you might not be very familiar with the history of these writers, is who is Mark? Well, Mark was known as John Mark. John was his Hebrew or Jewish name, Mark was his Roman name, and oftentimes people in the ancient world did have two names, and he was known as John Mark. He had a wealthy, prominent mother, the early church met in their home, and Mark encountered the gospel, and in fact, Mark went on a missionary journey, the first missionary journey with the apostle Paul. He was somehow you know, connected to that journey, and he left, he bailed on the mission. He turned around and went home. We don't know why. Some people think it was because of the rough travel. Some people think it was because he didn't expect to get persecution and to to be abused as he tried to preach the gospel. Whatever the reason was, and he was probably a younger man, he turned tail. And it upset the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul and, and Barnabas, the son of encouragement, argued about John Mark. John Mark was somehow related to Barnabas. Some people think that they were cousins. And there was an argument between Paul and Barnabas, and it turns out that uh, Paul and Barnabas got so heated in this quarrel that they split. And uh, Paul took Silas and went in one direction, and Barnabas went with John Mark in another direction. And so Mark knew what it was to fail. And it is interesting to note that uh, scholars would say that Mark's writing, his gospel, are the thoughts of Peter that Mark was Peter's interpreter. In 1 Peter 5, I think it's verse 13, Peter calls Mark my son. There was a close relationship between Peter and Mark, and early church fathers confirm that Peter's thoughts are behind Mark's gospel. The earliest testimony is from Papias, the bishop of Hierapolis. He writes around A.D. 140, quoting an earlier source, and he claimed that Mark... Is, uh, was Peter's interpreter, and he wrote an accurate gospel. Justin Martyr, writing about AD 150 in Rome, confirmed that Mark wrote down Peter's recollection of events. Most agree that Mark wrote his gospel in Rome under Peter's supervision. It's also confirm, confirmed by Irenaeus in France in AD 180. It's repeated by Tertullian and Clement of Alexandria. These are all early church fathers in North Africa. They wrote around 200. And... Uh, Clement and, uh, of Alexandria and Origen insist that Peter was alive when Mark wrote. Others say that Pe- Peter had died and Mark wrote in the late 60s. And then there's some tradition that says that Mark wrote during the reign of Claudius between 41 and 54 AD. Some modern scholars date Mark as early as 50 AD. And just to give you an idea, Jesus died probably around 33 AD. 
So any History Channel programs that you hear that claim that the Gospels were not even penned until centuries later is bogus. That's a Latin word. Bogus. It's nonsense. Okay? The, the Gospels were well established by the end of the first century. Canons were put together. That is, lists of books were put together to deal with heretics. Because heretics were trying to add Gnostic writings. Later, alleged Gospels where people penned them and they were not inspired by God. And since they were trying to force them as uh, uh, inspired literature, then canon lists came along. But look, the 27 books of the New Testament were well established in the Christian community by the end of the first century. In fact, there's, an early, there's a, a tradition that says that Mark may have written in the late 30s AD. Now, scholars say that they probably don't hold that view, but that would be within something like seven to ten years of the events. Either way, the Holy Spirit promised to bring back full recollection of those events, and Peter was an eyewitness, was he not? Now, think about it. Mark failed, and Peter and Mark probably felt a kinship because of dual failure. Mark bailed on the first missionary journey, and Peter confidently said, Lord, though all deny you, I will never, I will die for you. And Jesus said, Peter... You, this very night, will say that you don't know me three times before the cock crows. You'll disown me. Peter did. And when Peter did what he did and the rooster crowed, the Bible says he went out and wept bitterly. And I'm sure that Mark and Peter found a kinship in failure. Mark was restored to gospel ministry uh, Some time later, he became useful to the Apostle Paul. That's recorded in 2 Timothy 4.11. Send for Mark. He's become useful for me. So there was a reconciling. And Peter, of course, was reinstituted into gospel ministry by that campfire where fish were cooking on the beach in John 21. Peter, do you love me? Then go and take care of my sheep. You see, I want to tell you something about the people who wrote books of the Bible, they were not perfect. Mark failed. Peter failed. Maybe you failed. You know, maybe over the years you felt a calling on your life and maybe you had a crisis of faith or maybe you took a left turn instead of a right turn and you find yourself here this morning saying, Lord, can you use somebody like me? Maybe you've made a big blunder. Maybe you've made more than one. Welcome to the club. God uses broken people who have made mistakes. Even people who might consider themselves at this very moment a failure. I've got good news for you. God uses broken people. If he didn't, he couldn't use anybody because we're all broken. Amen. So be of good cheer. Now, sin, uh, and when we make mistakes, we don't use grace as an excuse for our sin, but I want to give you encouragement that, you know, here's a gospel writer, Mark. Some think he's the earliest gospel writer, and he failed. He writes Peter's thoughts, and Peter failed. Yet they were both mightily used by God to change the world. Mark's key verse is found in Mark 10.45. Just skip ahead for a second. Mark 10, look at verse 45 with me. It says these words, and and a lot of the Gospels will have like a key theme verse, and this would be the one I would point to for Mark 10.45. It says, For even the Son of Man, that's a title uh, Jesus used of himself from Daniel 7. He is fully man and fully God. He did not come to be served, but to what? Serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now, Jesus said that when the disciples were arguing about who would be the greatest. Go back to Mark chapter 1. And Jesus had to constantly remind them that they were not in the world to be served, but to serve. In fact, in Luke's gospel, Jesus gives an image of somebody who's sitting at the table like at a restaurant and who is going to be waited on by a waiter or a server. And he asks the question, which person is greater, the one At the table, being waited upon, or the waiter? And of course, the natural response is, well, the one greater is the one being waited upon. 
But Jesus says, but I have come as one who serves. He illustrated this in John chapter 13 when he uh, began to wash the disciples' feet. And they had to be shocked. He was taking the position of the lowest slave. And he said, do you know what I've done to you? You call me master and Lord, and you're right, that's what I am. If I, your Lord, washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Blessed are you if you what? Do these things. Do you find at Christmas time that, you know, uh, in the hubbub and all the things that start going on, you can become very self-focused. It can be about what gifts you want. You make your little list, right? Well, this year, I've only got 17 things that I want. And, and you're, you're, you begin to text and email the list of various people. I just want you to be aware this year what I'm looking for. Hold on, wait a minute. Whose birthday is it? <laughs> right? And so we can, be, we can get caught up in all this stuff. We can get caught up in everything that's going on. We, we met and we did a Bible study and I, we were looking at the story of the three wise men that came from the east, these priestly kings, Parthian class, you know, hundreds of miles from the area of Iran. And they come searching for the king. They saw his star in the east and they've come to what? Worship him. They're probably a huge entourage on horses, regally dressed. And when they got to the house, the star, which was supernatural, it had to be hovered over the house. I wonder almost if it had one of those pointy signs, you know, he's in there, he's in there. They came later, of course. Jesus was already in a house, not in the manger. So your manger scenes, I'm sorry, if you have a nativity scene that has the three wise men, there, it's incorrect. They were not there the night he was born. So take your wise men and just put them a little farther off over here. Okay? They may have been traveling. Jesus was at least a couple months old when they got there. Some believe he could have been as much as two years old. But what's interesting about the wise men is that they, they come and they present gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold is the gift for a king speaks of deity. Frankincense was used in the temple by high priest. Jesus is our king. He's our high priest. And they gave myrrh, which was used in uh, basically dealing with the stench in death. And he's our, he's our king, our high priest who came to die. How did they know what to bring? And you know what? They got down and they worshiped him. And I asked the question, I'll ask it of you. This year, what would be one thing that you'd want to give to Jesus that you've been holding back? One thing. What's one thing that you might want to add to your Christmas season that would be different from years past? I'm talking about maybe it'd be something about your time. Maybe it'd be something about how you give. Maybe it'd be you know, something about your own spiritual walk with the Lord. What one thing? do you want to give in the next, what, we've got about 12 days. What will you do with the next 12 days? Uh, a friend uh, shared a story. He said uh, he was uh, at work and they had a party for a man that had been at his company for 35 years. They were celebrating this man. I think he started at the company in his early 20s, so he was in about his mid-50s at the time. And so there's, you know, had a party for him. It was like a Friday, celebrating 35 years of the company. Cake, sweets, ice cream, attaboys, great. He went home that weekend and died of a massive heart attack. And he said, Pastor Michael, we just don't know what's going to happen. We take so much of life for granted. Well, Mark is going to show us this beautiful Savior, this beautiful servant, now you know why we're only going to do three verses. It's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See the word beginning? That word, of course, rings in our heads about Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We can think of John 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, he was in the beginning with God, speaking of Jesus. Um, 
First John 1 John 1.1 says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld, with our, what our hands handled concerning the word of life. And the word was manifested. Right? We've seen him. And that word beginning speaks of God and, and what he does, but beginning here to me speaks of something new. It's the beginning of the gospel. Everybody know what gospel means? Gospel means good news. It's the beginning of the good news. I've got good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. I had a friend email me and a young man that I had a chance to mentor And he said, hey, do you know that when Linus reads that famous scripture from Luke, it's the only time he's not holding his security blanket? Isn't that cool? Who needs a security blanket when you're quoting Luke 2? The angel said, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for how many? All the people for today. In the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior which is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find him wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. This is the simple yet profound story of the Bible. God came to serve us. If he didn't care about you, he wouldn't have come to the planet. And of all the questions that I have as I navigate this life, the things that I see, the ugly things that we've even witnessed in our own immediate area in San Bernardino. I always go back to Jesus. When I'm you know, struggling with uh, questions and doubts and you know, what should I do and what's next and how do I navigate my life on this planet, I always try to go back to Jesus. Because Jesus is God. And he came into the world to save us. And Jesus is the fulfillment of four servant songs recorded in the book of Isaiah. They were literally called servant songs. And this shadowy figure begins to emerge in the book of Isaiah, and he's called the servant of Yahweh. If you go to Isaiah 42, I'll show you one of them. Isaiah chapter 42. Um, Isaiah writes about 700 years before Jesus is born, which is remarkable. And he begins to show us this servant of Yahweh. Uh, He continues to appear at very dark times in the book of Isaiah. Just when you'd want to throw up your hands and say all hope is lost, then the servant appears. This is Isaiah 42, verse 1. It says, Behold, my servant, Isaiah 42, 1. Remember, the servant theme is the dominant theme of the Gospel of Mark. Whom I uphold... My chosen one in whom my soul delights. We're in Isaiah 42, verse 2. He will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Do you see verse 3? A bruised reed he will not break, a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. These, these ideas have of a, a bruised reed represents the poor and needy, a person who's beat up, bruised by life. And a person who's a bruised reed, he won't break them. He won't come to you when you're broken in life and say, you know what, you just need to really get it together. He won't kick you while you're down. You know, that's what the world tends to do. The world can very much celebrate personal catastrophe. There's whole shows built on it. Hey, did you hear what happened over here? Go through the supermarket line. You know? They want to show people in the worst light in many cases. Hey, look, so-and-so put on 15 pounds, right? Whoa. (laughs) Make you feel a little better? (laughs) I only put on five. He put on 15. We were watching uh, comedian Brian Regan, my wife and I, went and saw him for an anniversary trip, and he's a very funny guy. I don't know where he stands with the Lord, but his comedy is pretty clean. And he said, he came out and he said, uh, well, from the first of the year, he said, uh, I've been on a diet, and I've been trying to lose weight. He says, really tough. 
He said, but I heard this trainer say that a good life philosophy is in the morning, eat like a king, in the, at lunchtime, eat like a prince, and in the evening, eat like a pauper. And that's a good approach. He goes, so I implemented it, and in the morning, I've been eating like a king, and in, at lunch, I've been eating like a prince, and at night, I've been eating like a hippopotamus. <laughs> and I've gained 15 more pounds. Anyway, (laughs) he won't kick you when you're down. In fact, when you're down is when a lot of people turn to him and find him. Christmas time can be rough for a lot of people. Um, It's not always easy. You know, we may forget, but there are people who don't have family. There are people who have just lost somebody. It's the first holiday with something going on that's, Challenging. But Jesus will bring justice. The coastlands will wait expectantly upon him. Injustice is more than political dysfunction. Injustice is a denial of evil. It is a denial of God. Jesus came to bring God to the world. He showed us what a just world could look like. He showed us what it meant to love and serve others, though he was God. He showed us the servant the power to bring lasting change from a strength and purpose that is divine. That's what he came to do. He came to show us all what we should be like, but we fall miserably short. He came to show us what it means to love and serve and really be in awe of life and grace. Oh, that we could just all reflect him a little bit better. Thus says the Lord, the God, uh, thus says God the Lord, verse 5, Isaiah 42, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread the earth and its offspring, and its offspring who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. Uh, Keep reading. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people as a light to the nations. Simeon, when he held the baby, Jesus quoted something like this, a light to the nations. My eyes, he said, as he held the baby, Jesus, have seen thy salvation. He came to open blind eyes, verse 7, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon. Is that you? Those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, my praise to graven images. Behold, The former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Here it is. Here's the beginning of the gospel. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it. You islands and those who dwell in them. Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices. The settlements where Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing aloud. Let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. Go, tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. Man, good news of great joy has come. Will we believe? Will we trust in him? Turn back to Mark's gospel. This is the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. Jesus is his name. You shall call his name Jesus, Mark 1.1, for he shall save his people, what? From their sins. Jesus is Yeshua. The Hebrew form is Joshua. That was his name. The Greek form of his name is Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh saves. That's literally what his name means. Yahweh is salvation. He is the Christ. Christ is not his last name. Christ is Messiah. It literally means the anointed one. And he has come. He, is, he himself embodies the good news. He shares the message and he is the message. Look at Mark 1, verse 14. It says, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. And he said, the time is fulfilled, Mark 1.15. The kingdom of God is at hand. There's something we must do. Repent and what? Believe in the gospel. He is both the message and the messenger. 
And he came, and he began to proclaim the hope that the kingdom of God had entered time and space. This epic-making event, the good news of Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah, the Anointed One. If you look at the Hebrew picture language, anoint is mashak. It literally means the water. It combines the words water and humility. Mashak. Mem is water, and shak speaks of humility. He is the Mashiach. When you can see these two ideas combined, when he's at the Samaritan well with the woman at the well, and he promises that if she will ask of him, he will give her what? Living water. It was an act of humility for him even to talk to her. She had had five husbands. The man that she was with now was not her husband. To have five husbands means that five men left her. Women could not divorce their husbands. Only husbands could divorce their wives in that culture. She was a person used to being abandoned. Is that you? And he said, look, I've got to go through Samaria. Jews didn't even go through that place. But he said, I I have to go there. Why? Because he had an appointment to show her the water of humility, to show her the Messiah. And when there's an interaction later on in John 4, she says, I know when the Messiah is coming, he'll lead us and he'll show us all things. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. And people who are critics of the Bible, Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus never claimed to be this. Wait a minute, he just said, I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one. He is life. In him was life, and that life is the light of men. And the church for almost 2,000 years now has been instructed to go tell it on the mountain. To tell about Jesus Christ, he is the anointed one. Look at your Bible, he is, Mark 1.1, the Son of God. The unique Son of God, God the Son. When Jesus came... It was not, an, not a subtraction of deity, but an addition of humanity. Let me say that one more time. When Jesus came to the earth, he did not subtract his deity, he added humanity. That's the beauty of the incarnation. He is God the Son, the Son of God. They wanted to kill him in John 5.18 because they said, you being a mere man make yourself equal with God. And Jesus said over and over again, if you don't have me, you don't have the Father. You can't have the Father without the Son. All authority has been given to the Son, John 5. All judgment has been given to the Son. When you stand before God at that last day when you die or the final resurrection, you will stand before Jesus Christ. All judgment has been given to that little baby in Bethlehem who grew to be that man. All judgment belongs to him. It would be good to know him, don't you think? It would be good to say, Lord, I wasn't perfect. I didn't always do it right. But I realize that you died on that cross for my sin. And I'm going to trust in you and you alone. The testimony throughout the Gospel of Mark and the other Gospels, God the Father, Mark 1.10 says, This is my beloved Son in whom, Mark 1.11, I am what? Well, please, you've got the testimony of heaven at his baptism. You've got the spirit coming upon him. He is the unique son of God. Peter, whose thoughts are behind this gospel, said he heard a majestic voice on the Mount of Transfiguration, 2 Peter 1.17. That majestic, glorious voice said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Peter says, we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's what Mark is doing, probably writing on behalf of Peter, And I'll close with this prophecy. We'll come back and revisit it in a future message. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, if you have a King James or New King James, it says, in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. He is the voice, verse 3, Mark 1. Crying, it means to shout, scream, or cry out in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. New Testament writers aren't the only ones who write about Jesus. Old Testament authors did. 
And these quotations come from uh, Malachi, or if you are Italian, the book of Malachi. I grew up with the Malachi twins. I'm just kidding. Anyway. <laughs> and Isaiah. Um, why, does, why does Isaiah get credit for what is largely, at least in the first part, a prophecy from Malachi? Because sometimes when prophecies were grouped, they would quote the most prominent writer. There's a little difference in the manuscript families as to way, whether it mentions Isaiah, but it doesn't matter because Isaiah's uh, quotation comes in verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Now I'm going to take you to two final passages, so says the preacher, and we're done. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament right before Matthew. Malachi, go to chapter 2, look at verse 17. I just want to share a little bit of these prophecies. Malachi, um, probably about 500 years before Jesus, four or 500 years, says this. Look at uh, 2.17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, Malachi 2.17, how have we wearied him? In that you say everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Sound like contemporary questions to you? 3.1 Malachi. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. This is speaking of John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Now, final section is Isaiah chapter 40. When he comes, who will endure his coming? That points to his second coming. There's going to be a second figure who appears on the landscape before the second coming of Jesus, and his name is Elijah. He will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And just as the first coming and the, the birth in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2, were predicted, so the second coming of Jesus has predicted, has been predicted. And with that, a forerunner has been predicted, a John the Baptist-type figure. In fact, John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah, and Elijah is coming before Jesus returns. And the question will be, how many hearts will be ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ? It's been almost 2,000 years, you guys. A lot of people talking about prophecy. A lot of people talking about the end times. And Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That's his question. And Isaiah chapter 40 pictures this beauty of his entrance into the world. This is the prophecy of John the Baptist. And it prophesies that he is making the way ready for God. It starts this way. Comfort, O oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem, Isaiah 40, verse 2. Call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received from the Lord's hand, or of the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. They went through a tough time. A voice is calling Clear the way for the Lord. I want you to notice Isaiah's prophecy says the one who's coming, Jesus, is God. He's the Lord. Clear the way in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. He is God. Let every valley be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Think of Christmas night. And all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And a voice says, call out. And he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass. All its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands for how long? Forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. 
Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Would you bow with me, Father? Thank you so much for the arrival of the great shepherd, the lover of my soul, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, God with us, Emmanuel. Good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. With your head and heart bowed, I just want to ask you, do you know him? Is there room in your heart for him? Maybe you've had a lot of things crowding him out this year. Maybe you've been a prodigal and you've been away, but you want to come back to this one who gives life and is life. Right now, I'm going to ask you all to take a moment to just search your heart. Maybe it's that one thing that you'd want to do differently this Christmas season if you're a Christian. If you're a prodigal, it's just simply returning and coming home. If you're not a believer, but you'd like to become one, you are here for a reason. You can be changed in this moment and have the merriest of Christmases possible. It's something like this. If this applies to you and you want to make it official, you're not sure, God forbid, if you died tonight, you'd be in heaven. Make sure. Something like this, with your head and heart bowed. Pray, Lord Jesus, pray it out loud if it's you. Come into my life. Thank you that you came into this world for me. Thank you that you died on the cross. Thank you that you rose from the dead. I believe. I repent of my sin. I turn from it. And I turn to you. I believe the good news of Jesus Christ, Son of God, Messiah. Lord, for those who are trying to form those words in their lips or in their hearts, would you minister peace and good tidings, blessings from above? Thank you that you're here with us. You said you would never leave or forsake your people. You said you would be with us until the end of the age. You said your spirit would dwell into a, in us until the day of redemption, the day of the second coming. And we know you're coming again, Lord. And we look back to a manger, shepherds peering in to see a baby who is Lord and God. We look back to a cross and an empty tomb. We look to a Savior who's enthroned in the heavens, our great high priest, interceding for us. And we look to a day in the future when you will come for your people, or we will go to be with you. Lord, may your living waters, the beauty of who you are, flood our hearts afresh. Strengthen us for the days ahead. Let us be ambassadors as though you were pleading through us for people to be reconciled to you. We just want to say we love you. I thank you for this wonderful congregation, the blessed friendships and family that we have here. Let us count our blessings this Christmas season. Let us draw close to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.